everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for Invested. It's our podcast on, and guess what? Investing. <laughs> it's yeah. on investing, how to be invested in your life, invested in your money. And for me, learning more about how to live a little bit better by learning about public companies and what they do in our world. And I want to extend that to everything you're learning about public companies and what they do in the world applies equally to private companies, to franchises, to real estate investments. In other words, my view of this whole thing is that when you get fully invested into this whole process, this whole thing that you're calling a practice, you end up with a really wide world of things you can invest in and understand. You know, that's a good point. Somebody said to me recently, oh, you know, I just really like real estate. So I guess listening to your podcast and learning this stuff isn't helpful. And I was like, no, that's the whole point is that you can use these tools to value different kinds of investments. And that's something I've learned. I wasn't expecting that that would be true. Well, I really want to push back on that particular listener because the the problem that most people had in real estate in 2000 five, six, seven, eight, you know, as the whole real estate market peaked and crumbled, is that they were paying way too much for pieces of real estate because they were valuing it the way investors value real estate instead of in value. How do investors value real estate? Yeah, well, investors value real estate by what somebody paid last week. In other words, they, <laughs> they look at the, the uh, comps or the, the comparable sales and say, oh, well, this townhome sold for $400,000 last year, so surely I can sell it for four fifty. And this little error in thinking created a disaster financially, both individually and for our entire country, um, as people assumed this incredibly stupid point of view, which is held by the enormous number of people in all markets, most, and most has been written about it with the public markets, that the price that you pay for something is what it's worth. And yeah. it's really stupid. I mean, well, it is there's, incredibly there's two parts stupid. of that. It's the price that you pay is what it's worth because there will be someone willing to pay more. There's no intrinsic value to it. It's just, it's worth this because I can sell it for more than this. Yeah, essentially, I guess that's, that's certainly one variation of the whole idea of modern portfolio theory. Um, that basically states as an axiom that in a market where there's all the information is known and there's a lot of liquidity and trading going on in the market with intelligent people, that smart people won't pay more than a thing is worth and they won't sell it for less than it's worth. And therefore, the price is the value. And that little logical statement right there is beyond stupid because it, <laughs> it completely takes emotion out of the equation of the market. And the market are the markets are almost by definition emotional, and this is the new level of research we've seen in the last ten years coming out of the Ivy League, um, indicating how emotional markets really are. But you don't have to go very far to see emotions in markets. Just think about what happened with real estate. It's yeah. just you know you you stop thinking rationally and start thinking emotionally when you sort of do what you were just talking about, which is to say. That oh the value of this thing is four hundred thousand because somebody's going to come along and pay more. Um, yeah, this this is an emotional statement, not a rational statement. It's a hope, not not a, a not a a promise. 
And uh, the idea that you're going to pay X for something because some, they, they, I actually call this and is known as the greater fool theory. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I paid $400,000. A greater fool will come along and pay more. You know, Except that nobody doing that ever calls it that because you, it implies that you yourself are a fool. Exactly. And there is a greater one coming along. So exactly. while it's happening, it's like, no, I'm just really intelligent about this. And yeah, I've, I'm going to flip this thing in two months. And the thing is, the reason that that happens is that it works for a while. It works. It's true. It does. It, excuse me. <coughs> Years I have to forgive me a little coughing here. I have got bronchitis. Dad is doing an amazing had. job today, even being able to talk. Yeah, so thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, yes, you're welcome. Um, yeah, and I'm going to get spacey and try to and forget what we're even talking about. But this idea that there's a greater fool, but it's not you, is a very emotional idea. It's not a rational idea. It, and it basically says that there's no such thing as a real price in something like real estate. It's just whatever people are willing to pay. And you're going to find a lot of adherence of that because when real estate starts becoming a popular investment, it becomes starts to become a bubble like any other popular investment does. And as the bubble grows, the people who are saying, hey, I'm going to buy this and flip it are right over and over yeah, again. That's the thing is they're right. Over and over and over. Yep. And that's how that works. All the way until they're not. Right. <laughs> and then and- <laughs> then they shoot themselves. And it happens. Really, we have, we have uh, you know, friends of our family who, you know, this woman lost her husband because he was a really successful real estate entrepreneur and developer. And when the bottom fell out, he just stuck a gun in his mouth. And it's terrible. But the impact emotionally on people of this of this idea that, you know, there's a greater fool out there. Somebody's going to come along and bail you out. It just simply isn't the case. You know, if you get caught in a bubble, you're going to get you're going to get hammered eventually if you stay in it. And that's why I like that we've been talking about intrinsic value, because the intrinsic value is what saves you from market pricing. It's what saves you from saying, oh, it's just all the market. There's never any actual value. It's always no matter how low or how high it goes it's all dependent on everybody else like that's just not true when it comes to now to be fair when it comes to certain kinds of things that is true like we've mentioned diamonds diamonds are entirely market picassos exactly but with things like real estate or companies there is a value and there is something that they give off um value wise or cash wise that's more than than just what the market is going to bear. Well, this is a huge point about real estate, and that is that real estate should be looked at, in my view, as a business. Of course, if you're buying a home, if you're buying something you're never going to sell, um, you know, th- you, you can you can think about it differently, but don't think about it as an asset in that case, right? It's just you take a chunk of money and it's gone, and now yeah. you have this house. Yeah, and you're and you're getting something which is a place to live. Yeah, you get a place to live. But in, in general, when we're talking about real estate, we're not talking about the home you live in. We're talking about real estate investing. And this process of real estate investing is encouraged by, you know, shows like Flip That House and and uh, people who are showing renovations of places and fixing them up. And I, Matt, I go. I mean, Dad, there's an entire television channel about house <laughs> renovations, an entire channel and people are obsessed with it obsessed yeah it's crazy it's it's understandable because real estate seems to be a, a, a something you can understand you can get your head around the concepts of real estate 
I know. I've said that a bunch of times on here. That it's very easy for me to understand. I can relate to it. I can see it. I know what I'm getting. It's tangible. Yep. I can walk into it. And I can understand what's wrong with it. And I can, I can understand what's right with it. It's easy. Yep. It's easy right up until it isn't. And, 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 and this is the problem with it is that people don't have a solid foundation in understanding value or intrinsic value find themselves swayed by the market prices dramatically and they want to keep making the money and they want to keep doing what they've been doing and then they get caught in the bubble and ultimately they lose everything and i'm i'm thinking specifically you know this is not something that just happened in 2007 um, when i first began as an investor i don't know if i've ever told you this when i first began as an investor um, i was encouraged to look at real estate and to read a book by a guy named Bill Nickerson, who wrote this okay. book called Oh man, I don't even remember what it's called. We're gonna get we're gonna get emails on this one, but he <laughs> wrote the book in the 1950s about investing in um, in Oakland real estate, Oakland apartment complexes, which he started with you know by having a, a duplex, and then he you know levered that up into a quad, and then he levered that up into multi unit apartments and, in Oakland, California. In Oakland, California, yeah. And and he did it as a working as a post office worker and ultimately made millions of dollars. And he wrote the book about it. Wow. Bill Nickerson. Was and, Oakland <clears throat> at that time kind of a like up and coming city? No, it was heading downhill. Okay. It was heading downhill. He was buying into so he was a market. Buying cheap had, stuff. Yeah, it had sixty percent occupancy, you know, forty percent vacancies. Nobody wanted the real estate. And uh and so he made a fortune doing that. And he wrote a book about it, built a fortune doing the same thing. He read Nickerson's book and then he built this fortune doing exactly the same thing. Oakland real estate, but doing it, you know, 20 years later and um, and had been very successful with it. And then he sold off all of the Oakland real estate that he had made uh, money on and got a million dollars in cash and bought a single commercial property in Ogden, Utah. Okay. And went bankrupt a year later. Oh God! Because he he thought he knew what was going on with this new thing, and it turned out he didn't. And he treated That's it awful. I know he treated it like you know everything goes up, right? Because this was his experience in Oakland, and um, and it doesn't always go up with real estate. And so if you look at things carefully as a business, if he had looked at that as a business, he would have never bought that, I don't think. He would have understood that as a business, this commercial building had serious structural problems and was not going to be successful. Yes. So, you know, including the city it was in, right? Including the location it had, including the tenants that were there. The cash flow wasn't steady. He didn't have a track record. All of the things we talk about in terms of a business can be just as big a problem in real estate if you're not paying attention. So let me let me take everybody back to just a, a, a couple of podcasts ago where we talked about Warren Buffett's view of, you know, how to value a piece of real estate. You take, do you remember what we, what yeah, we were discussing? Yeah, we're back to the, uh, the building by NYU yeah. in Greenwich Village, New York. Yeah. And he found it, uh, when was that, in the 80s, you said? No, that was in the 1990s. The 90s. Yep. And um, and because of some 
uh, financial structure that I can't remember. Well, the this savings milky- and loan industry had over leveraged and, and, and had put loans into a bunch of places that were not good loans because yeah. they forgot that real estate is business also. And it collapsed. And the government ended up with a bunch of buildings. And oh, that's right. It was government owned, yep, wasn't it? Yep. And they couldn't get rid of this thing because yeah. it had one tenant that had the majority of the building and was in at a super low rate per square foot. So nobody wanted it you know, to sit there for nine years and wait. Yeah, because they had a lease and they weren't going to break it. Right. And of and course, so. the government wasn't pricing the building that would reflect that. The government priced the building as if you could break the lease and, and wouldn't put the price at a place that would reflect the current conditions because the upside was huge if they did that. And, uh, you know, basically Warren Buffett just stepped in and said, OK, here's the key things I'm looking for. Number one, this is a fundamentally good business. Number two, it's got suboptimal uh, tenants in it. Like, like we can change something about this ultimately that's going to change the income, it, even if all we have, have to do really is wait nine years. So if I can buy this at a cap rate, a 10 cap rate that reflects my requirements as an investor, then I've got a good enough deal to sit here for nine years. And that means that he gets a 10 cap rate means that he gets 10% return on the money he puts in the first year and then each year after that. But like immediately, he's not looking for a growth in that cap you're, rate. You're getting pretty good. I'm going to dial that a little tighter. I'm going to say that the 10 cap rate reflects uh, the money he put in, assuming he paid all cash for the building. Oh, I actually was assuming that. Yeah. Because I figured if he had to do some kind of complicated financing thing, somebody else would have already taken that building. Yeah, exactly. I- I'm assuming that part of his part of the value he offered was that he paid all cash. Exactly, but cap rates are always can can always and uh, uh, um, basically accounted for by looking at it without any mortgage uh, financing okay. involved. So without worrying about interest payments or yep. calculating them. Exactly, in. exactly. And so there's our criteria. That's a business deal. That business deal is throwing off a 10% yield, cash on cash, um, for nine years, and then. Um, it's going to jump like crazy. So we really like that. That That's exactly how to value a business. And we like to value our businesses out here. Like, for example, right now, you can look at Apple Computer and see that it has about a 12 cap rate. Really? Yeah, right Right this very minute. if uh, Now, there's a lot of assumptions there that we have to deal with in terms of the business. But assuming, this is a big one, assuming that Apple can maintain the cash flow and it, that it has going right now, right? The free cash flow coming in off of that. If you owned all of Apple right now, you would, at the current price, you would be getting an 11.9% return on cash. And I'll note that we are not saying when we're recording this and you should do your own research into Apple's numbers. <laughs> Always. And anything he says... He has bronchitis and is on all sorts of medications, so don't listen. <laughs> and remember that this this recording and this podcast are for your education and entertainment only. That's so correct. especially when I'm on drugs, this is entertainment only. And, uh, Trust and me. you have to do your own work. Always, <laughs> always, always, always. But at some point in time, maybe according to Phil Town's calculations, which may or may not be accurate, there is a 12 cap rate on Apple. Yeah. We'll just pretend like that's true. So... That's a lot, right? Or wait, okay, question though. Is that a lot for a public company? Because we've talked about, I think we've been saying that a public company usually trades 
at like a okay wait i'm trying to remember private company is like seven or eight public company is higher because of the liquidity so what numbers are a public company usually well, it all depends on what numbers we're talking about. So when you say a private company is seven to eight. No, I'm getting them all mixed up. <laughs> um, what I'm talking about with seven or eight is the multiple of EBITDA. Well, no? That's, no, I would say seven to eight for private companies is the average um, number of years of payback time. Okay. Number of years of payback time. But these, are, these numbers all have something in common. No, no, I have it right here in black and white. Multiple of earnings. I was right. Multiple of earnings. Yeah, multiple of earnings. A PE of 7 to 8. Of 7 or 8. Yeah, And a that's public right. company is 10 to 14. Public companies are, are more in the range of 15 on average. And they do range up, you know, from 10 to 100. I mean, they go huge. Let me be more specific. Yes. I have written down 10 to 14x for non-growing great business. There you this go. Is in, this is in the public company section. There you go. That's right. 15x and up for a growing great business. There you go. And I get what you're saying because we're always looking for growing businesses. Yeah, exactly. And we'll buy a non-growing business, but we got to get it at a great price. And we have to understand why it doesn't grow. So, for example, we might want to buy, um, I mean, I don't, but we might want to you know, considerably buy a a uh, chocolate company like C's Candy, which doesn't really grow. It just increases its price with inflation. And um, and yet it could be a stunning investment. And we know that because Warren Buffett bought that business for $25 million. And today, you know, 20 years later, it's producing $65 million a year in free cash flow that goes into Berkshire Hathaway every year and keeps growing at inflation. So although the business hasn't grown hardly, you know, and, and current dollars hasn't grown at all, the amount of cash coming off of that thing makes it an incredible investment. So we, it, it's really ultimately about free cash flow and a relationship of free cash flow to what, the, what, the, uh, um, what is a reasonable price in, in, in our view of the market. And as we discussed, you know, Charlie and, and Warren consider a reasonable price or a fair price to be the private company price, not the public company price, because they're not particularly interested in, you know, liquidity. Yeah, they are willing to hold things for such a long time. And also they just have the ability to sell private companies because they are a large private company that can buy and sell other private companies. Well, they're a large public company that can buy and sell other companies. Like, well, that's true, but they have private holding companies within that. Oh, yeah. Many, 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 and I, many. And I think that's typically how they buy private companies. That's very, very true. Um, so, but I have a question. So, yeah. so, so the multiple of earnings, which I just mixed up with the cap rate, are those connected? Um, let's take a look. Let's say that a company has... Um, so a cap, rate, a cap rate is the return... On your investment. Exactly. Cap rates the return on your investment. It's just a method of looking at how much you're going to pay, except that you've used it as a way to figure out the return on your investment by calling it the payback time. I think that's where I get mixed up. Well, it's a really, it's a, you know, we're looking at sort of variations on a theme and it's, it's easy to get mixed up here a little bit, but let's just take an example that we use in class all the time about a river touring company. 
that's making a million dollars a year in constant dollars, that that river touring company ends up selling over and over and over again in our classes for seven to eight years worth of its earnings. And since its earnings aren't growing, it's essentially selling for seven to eight million dollars, right? Because it's got a million dollars of earnings. Okay. All right. So let's say we buy this building or, or this business for seven million dollars and it has a one million dollar earnings coming off of it. What's the cap rate? Ah, yes. <laughs> I wish you could see Danielle's face right now. I'm looking at her. She's pursing this number. You're not supposed to ask me math Scratching the back of her neck. But let's just understand what a cap rate is. A cap rate is the yield on the, on the money that you paid for the business. So you know you're getting $1 million. And we're going to have to stipulate that your earnings and your operating cash flow are the same thing and your free cash flow is the same thing. Those are all the same thing in this particular business. So you're getting a million dollars a year on this business and you paid $7 million for it. So your million dollars is your yield. And in order to figure out what that is on a percentage yield basis to compare it to bonds and all the other kinds of companies, you know, just think about it like this, hon. If you have $7 million in the bank and they're paying you, you know, a 1% interest on it, you'd be making $70,000 a year. So how would, you, how would you figure that out, You would, that you were getting 1%? Well, you'd divide the $70,000 you're getting by the $7 million that's in the bank. So here, so we're, here we're getting 1 over 7. Yeah, we're getting 1 over 7. And that turns into something. Which turns into roughly 12 point something. Let's call it, let's call it roughly 13. So okay. if that private company in class is selling for, you know, a cap rate of somewhere between 11 and 13 is where people ended up coming down on it over and over again. Oh, got it. Okay, so 13 would be the cap rate in that situation. Yeah. So if a business isn't growing, I can get all kinds of math on you here. It's like, I think the name of this is a reciprocal of the P.E. ratio. In other words, if the P.E. ratio of a non-growing business is 8, um, you simply divide 8 into 1 to get its reciprocal, and that would be about 11-something, right? 12. I just, It'd be I just 12. spaced out on whatever you just said. It involved reciprocals. <laughs> and I, it's like... I'm the one that's supposed to space out here. I got bronchitis, not you. <laughs> So uh, what I'm doing for all of our math fiends out there who are on this podcast, who are grabbing this immediately and running with it, is that there is a relationship between the uh, payback time, the P.E. ratio, and the cap rate. There's a, re there's a relationship. Essentially, the cap rate is the reciprocal of, of the P.E. ratio. It's one way you could think about it. And since we're treating P.E. ratios differently, P.E. ratios are earnings, not owner cash flow or free cash flow. Um, we're not going to call these the same thing exactly, but since you brought it up, there is a relationship for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I need to I need to think a bit more about that and come back to everybody when I have a sense of, <laughs> of what's happening. We just, we just climbed into deep math hot water right there and everybody oh, who's like, driving is just going, ah, no. I mean, it's like once you get to fifth grade level, you're just beyond me. I can remember fourth grade, but I think fifth grade we got to like fractions and 
I'm done. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.